0: enfolding every race, nation, and language. Then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. If you have any thoughts, any questions, or comments, you can always send me an email to greg at consideringcatholicism.com. And would you like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with friends or on your social media so that we can grow our audience and enlarge the conversation. Now, one of our periodic features are the book club episodes. Corey Lakatos and I both love Catholicism and novels. And so, in book club, we talk about some of our favorite Catholic novels. Today, we've got a book that has been strongly recommended by both of the last two popes, Benedict XVI and Francis. It's Lord of the World, published in 1907 by the English author Robert Hugh Benson. Benson was the son of a prominent clergyman in the Church of England who scandalized his family when he converted to Catholicism and became a Catholic priest and an author. Benson's story takes place 100 years in the future from when he wrote it, so basically in the time that we're living in now. And he imagined not only a world of advanced technology, but of advanced secularism and the persecution of Christians. In Benson's novel, human society in one sense hits its high point, but more importantly, its low point. As a world government emerges under the leadership of a charismatic leader, who ends up being the fulfillment of the biblical antichrist and who brings the world to its last day. Shh. It's time for book club. So Corey, welcome back to book club.
1: Thanks. Good to be back.
0: Now, Corey, the listeners are subject to our whims and tastes indeed and uh because it's our book club and not theirs (laughs) Uh, and so in terms of what what books we choose and uh we both uh, are fans of the genre of science fiction indeed and, you know, science fiction comes in a lot of different flavors. Uh, there's hard science fiction, which, you know, I grew up reading and loving, you know, the, where the focus is really on the science. And, and trying
1: to make it more realistically scientific.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's exploring the science of it all. And, but aside from that, there's a, another kind of what we may call a softer science fiction where it allows an author to a sort of build a world in which they can tell a story sort of unconstrained by uh, reality. Right, and facts, yeah, the right? facts
1: of, of today or yesterday, um, sometimes called speculative fiction because it's it's basically just pitching the story out into the future where you can build around it a setting that allows you to tell the story that you couldn't tell with today's
0: reality. Or historical fiction or right, whatever. Right. And and so a lot of fun science fiction or good science fiction is is that sort of thing where the Mm -hmm. author is able to sort of construct a little bit of an alternative future where they can focus on a story Mm -hmm. and see where that plot goes. And so what's interesting is that there's actually quite a bit of uh, science fiction that's Catholic, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm many Catholic authors. And because we love science fiction, we're Catholics, and this is a Catholic book club, uh, we're going to talk about some Catholic science fiction.
1: Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it.
0: So today we're going to talk about Lord of the World, uh, Mm -hmm. but we have some other books that will be coming up. Soon in the book club, you want to talk about some of those?
1: Yeah, so one of my favorites, a Canticle for Leibowitz, we're going to do soon. Um, we also have been reading uh, a Michael D. O'Brien novel, um, a contemporary author. Um, his foray into science fiction, a Voyage to Alpha Centauri, um, and then we are hoping to cover some other books that weren't written by Catholics, but on our spectrum that we talked about in the intro episode, certainly have Catholic themes and are, and are relevant. Um, so that would include Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, that would include uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, space trilogy, books like that. So there's there's a lot of places we can go, and I'm hoping um, as we continue with book club, we can find some some more as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So today it's Lord of the World by mm-hmm. Robert Hugh Benson, and it is a work of that sort of science fiction. Mm-hmm in in which and i think it this it's a good example of the softer version of science fiction because it really is just sort of an alternative vision of the future he's looking a 100 years or so into the future mm-hmm. book written in 1907 and he's looking you know, into well, <laughs> would have been today, right? Sort of predicting a century out, and the science part is pretty soft. I mean,
1: yeah, he's not focusing on it. Like he projects some new technologies that they didn't have in 1907, which you know, some of it's interesting, some of it's kind of kind of silly. But they have
0: they yeah. have sort of what he imagines airplanes will be like, mm-hmm. and what he imagines like telephones might be like, and but some of those not, things. But it's
1: not it's yeah. not really important to the plot, except in a, in a few instances.
0: Right, right. So. Uh, but it is a work that projects from things that Benson was seeing in his day, mm-hmm. and if you almost think of where you've got a, a graph where you have a, a data trend, and then you just project that trend right. out into the future, uh, he was just projecting out things that he was seeing in around the turn of the 20th century and imagining what they might be like Around the turn of the twenty first century today,
1: right, and that's mostly political and religious trends.
0: Yeah, and cultural and yep. whatnot. So, with that being said, why don't you give a synopsis to the book? And by the way, again, at book club, there's going to be spoilers because we're yes. we're not doing book reviews. We're discussing a book. So, but knowing where this thing is going is not going to change whether uh, this is worth reading. So, Absolutely. Go ahead.
1: All right. Um, so the novel opens with um, essentially a, a world building section or something that allows you to get the context of, of where we are in this imagined history. So you have um, two priests who are interviewing um, this aging, dying man who used to be in Parliament. Uh, this is all taking place in England. Um, and they're basically getting the summary of how did we get here from the last hundred years. Um, and so you're getting a lot of details about this imagined um, political and religious future in how um, essentially a, a uh, socialist government came into power in England and in the rest of Europe, um, that there's this essentially European confederation or state. There's also now a um, Asian state, megastate, and an American, North and South American megastate. So it's a little bit like if if you are familiar with 1984. You Mm -hmm. have kind of these three giant power blocks. And in America and in Europe especially, um, it's dominated by this socialist or communist um, collectivism uh, that's a secular state. Um, On the religious front, most, if not all, of um, Protestant and other religious groups besides the Catholic Church have faded away under the pressure. Um, The uh, Church of England was disestablished long ago. Um, and so really you have um, religiously and ideologically um, the, the dominant secularism of the state and of the uh, dominant culture. And then you have the Catholic Church, which is standing athwart this.
0: Now, you mentioned a moment ago uh, Orwell's 1984, mm-hmm. and that's a book that has been compared to Lord of the World. Sure. Uh, uh, Orwell wrote that book after this one. But they both have some parallels in that they both see not only the secular government, but they see socialism, mm-hmm. leftism, um, Marxism, uh, and that it is socialism, leftism, Marxism that has taken over and ha- become an all-powerful, all-controlling government that dominates every aspect of people's lives for, the cl- for supposedly the collective good, yet is run by an elite at mm-hmm. the top who manages life and outcomes for everybody below
1: yeah and, and to be clear that was essentially a stated goal of of global marxism it wasn't you know these people having still a kind is of, kind of fever dream still is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and and of course orwell being several decades down the road had some more context he was after the bolshevik revolution in russia um whereas uh benson is before it but you're already seeing Um, Things happening along those lines that Benson would would have experienced.
0: Now, the interesting thing is that the premise of this book is that that global socialism, Mm -hmm. you know, if you think of if we think of Marxism as a worldview, which is my contention, uh, and socialism as actually a political program. Mm -hmm. What you have is this sort of Marxist socialist vision, which is for Benson. Completely antithetical. And you'll say a minute, Mm. uh, he he makes that antithesis very, very clear in this book. You can unpack that. But it is antithetical in the sense of being diametrically opposite to Catholicism. And I think what's a little bit interesting about that is that in our last uh, book club uh, episode, we talked about Graham Greene's Power and the Glory, Mm. which was uh, a real incident, not, I mean, well, I mean, it was obviously a fictional story. But based on the historical uh, incidents that occurred in Mexico when a Marxist socialist government worked to exterminate Catholicism. Mm -hmm.
1: And only about a decade after Benson is writing, writing this novel.
0: Right. So so it's a real thing. And and it is the extermination of the Catholic Church by the philosophy of Marxism, socialism. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So you have all of that context laid out for you to to paint the picture. Um, and then you're told that right now um, the big deal is that there's a threat of war between this, this European state and this Asian state. Um, and everybody's very concerned about what's going to happen with that. And there are rumors that there's this American senator that nobody really knows very much about, Julian Felsenberg, who's kind of going around in the East and trying to um, negotiate this situation. And there are rumors flying and nobody really knows exactly what's happening out there. In this context, you're introduced to your protagonist, um, Father, Father Percy Franklin, um, who is a priest in London at the cathedral there, um, and you're seeing him uh, ministering in this situation of not, not open persecution at the beginning of the novel, but definitely um, uh, antagonism towards the church.
0: Yeah, Catholicism had not yet been at the beginning of the novel not yet been outlawed, right? Yet, and sort of tells you where the novel's going. But it was marginalized, otherized, disenfranchised in in pretty significant ways, not only in England but in throughout Europe,
1: right? And and America. This is kind of a, a situation uh, Glo- the throughout. Gl-
0: yeah, yeah, the global socialist, Marxist socialist left, which has come to dominate, you know, the, the world's governments. And I think what's interesting, too, just to point out that at the beginning of the novel, Benson makes the point, or the narrator makes the point that Protestantism had already faded away. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting thing, because and it becomes material in the rest of this book, because Protestantism ultimately didn't have the, uh, the right stuff to withstand uh, the ideology of Marxism, socialism. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was left to Catholicism as to be the true um, thesis to which the left is the antithesis.
1: Yeah. And and I think you when you read the book you get a pretty good sense of why Benson feels that. Part of it is of course that he's he's a convert from the Church of England into the Catholic Church. So obviously this is very important to him. He's he's sort of zealous for for portraying the Catholic Church in that way. And then we'll also see over the course of the novel how the papacy is very important in the church and in Benson's understanding and vision of the church and how um, the church is held together in this situation of increasing persecution. So that's, that's where you start. We're also introduced to um, two characters, um, Oliver Brand and his wife Mabel. Oliver is a high minister in the government in England, Mabel his wife, um, and you have a, a subplot where um, uh, Oliver's mother, who used to be a Catholic in her childhood, is approaching death, and she actually seeks to be readmitted into the church. Um, and that's how you have uh, the, the intersection of Father Franklin and the Brand family, um, because he ends up in that situation. So you have these uh, characters being introduced into the situation. And then, as I mentioned before, you have Felsenberg rising to power. Um, He essentially, uh, through his charismatic um, negotiation, he neutralizes this threatened war between
0: well he Europe brings the peace. world peace right. and he, so now he is the savior literally he's called the savior of the world because he issues in the new age of eternal mm-hmm. peace in the world right. right
1: and and you have this literal religious fervor arising around him um and him drawing all the nations together um and and essentially yeah bringing about this this new age a secular messianic age um and you have that being very strongly opposed by the church and particularly by the pope
0: so at the time of this book, it's interesting, Rome has become like the last citadel, like the, the yeah. last fortress. Well,
1: it's funny because it's Roman Ireland.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, Roman, I know, Roman, yeah. I, and Roman um, Ireland are the last citadels, but Rome has mm-hmm. is, is really become this sort of citadel of... Of Catholicism and mm. Christianity in the world. Let me talk a little. Yeah, bit
1: about- so so the Pope is is ruling Rome as a kind of independent city-state. Christians, um Catholics from all over the world have come there. um It's it's uh, the the center and capital. There are of course Catholics all throughout the world as well. um But it's kind of the city on a hill, and we have also introduced in early in the novel this striking uh, similarity between felsenberg and our protagonist uh, yeah, they just say but, physically yeah, they, they look identical people are very confused it's like wait i i just saw him and you look exactly like he does and so through the through the course of the events of the novel um franklin ends up in rome in his role of, of basically being a, a go-between or bringing news um of what's happening in the church in england to the vatican to to the pope and then you have this, uh, this crisis, this situation in which there's essentially a, a Catholic plot against uh, Felsenberg well, that's well, happening in England. Hold on a sec. Yes, yeah, go ahead. An
0: important point there is that the rise of Felsenberg, you know, mm-hmm. he gets named to be the president of Europe and president, essentially mm-hmm. he gets named to be the president of the world. Right. And it, it becomes alarming to the Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pope, and now again, the backdrop of all of this is that they're looking at biblical prophecy. Mm-hmm. And the biblical prophecy is the prophecy of the rise of the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. That eventually there'll be one who will bewitch the nations, who will pose as the man of peace and savior of the world and lord of the world. But he's not Christ; he's the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. And the Pope in Rome is seeing the rise of Felsenburg, who's consolidating power and and launching a new religion. Right? Can say this, something about this that. This
1: humanistic religion that he's it, launching—it it,
0: it really is a little religion. We can talk about mm-hmm. that for a second. Yeah. And and as the Pope sees this rising, he, he reads the signs of the times and understands mm-hmm. who, who Felsenberg is, that he is the final manifestation of Antichrist, the biblical Antichrist. Say a little bit about this religion that Felsenburgh institutes.
1: Yeah, so it, it is meant to be based, well, it, it is in the, in the context of the novel based on Masonic rites. Um, the little background, especially in the early 20th century, um, the Masons are, are very opposed to the Catholic Church. And there's um, repeated statements in, in real life of the church saying that Masonic ideology and practice is antithetical to the church. You can't be a Mason and you can't be a Catholic.
0: Yeah, and I think that's hard for readers today because Masonry qua Masonry um, isn't as prominent or visible. Well,
1: and in the- America, it's, it's often looked less threatening.
0: Right. but the principles or the ideology of, of Freemasonry is the dominant, I would say, the dominant ideology of the the left even in the united states so why don't you talk a little bit about it? it's, it's human it's, it's humanism uh writ large
1: right yeah so so what you end up with is this this religious worship that's centered around the worship of humanity in, in a few different guises uh, and mother, pa-
0: pantheism right
1: and the universe yeah so uh in the in the guises of motherhood and fatherhood of of these different kinds of natural things um it, it's a a worship of collective humanity, um, that that each individual person is is sort of a cell in this in this giant body that is being worshipped in Which The
0: universe is, has given birth to, right. and that we worship the processes of the universe, we worship this. And none of us, as you say, is important because all of mm-hmm. us, all, all that matters is the collective and then you can Felsenberg... Yeah, yeah,
1: And Felsenberg is seen as sort of the the manifestation, the ultimate um, manifestation of the universe of humanity.
0: He's the um, he's the sort of uh, the apex of of human evolution. Right.
1: He's a messiah in this in this religion that they've constructed.
0: So he sets us up, and they begin to require that everyone adopt the new religion. Talk about that.
1: Right. Yeah. They they make uh, these. Uh, Quarterly worship services mandatory um, and
0: they they take over churches mm -hmm. and they erect new symbols in the churches, uh, new ceremonies in which this sort of collective pantheism is and and citizens are required to attend.
1: Right. At, at, At first at pain of imprisonment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, all of this is, of course, Benson is drawing on historical parallels. Mm -hmm. So this is essentially uh, the requirements uh, under the Roman Empire for worship of the emperor, worship of the empire, the cult of the empire. Right. And you must periodically show up as a citizen and and make... Uh, at least token acknowledgement.
1: Yeah, and he's certainly drawing upon his English context, too, in the English Reformation, uh, the establishment of the Church of England, um, the the requirement of of worship in in those churches that alienated Catholics um, and and cut them off from the, the body politic in the country.
0: So the Pope sees the rise of this, reads the signs of the times, and says this is the rise of the final manifestation of Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Um, we that's a whole other conversation of the other day in terms of how, what the Bible teaches about Antichrist. But mm-hmm. there's this, the Bible, I think a Catholic viewpoint is that Antichrist is a spirit opposed to Christ, but there is a final, met, and there have been Antichrists, mm-hmm. in other words, there have been people who uh, were leaders of opposition, but there is finally coming to some culmination at the end of the age before the return, uh, second coming of Christ, there Mm -hmm. is a final manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist. And that's what the Pope recognizes is going on. And that sets the stage for this conflict. So as you get to the end, there's, there's two leaders in the world. There is the Antichrist, leader of this global socialist, humanitarian, pantheistic Marxist religion, mm-hmm. and there's the Pope in Rome. Right.
1: Um, and and so in that context, in the context of this this new worship having been established um, under Felsenberg's leadership, you have the Pope urging Catholics throughout the world to keep the faith, um, to not seek actively martyrdom, but to, you know, take it if, it if it does come to them um, to, to weather persecution with faithfulness.
0: Well, and he launches um, a new religious order.
1: Right. Um, and, and he urges people to join this new order of Christ crucified that you can join. Uh, it's, it's not limited to religious or priests, lay people join the order. Um, it, it's a way of um, sort of... Uh,
0: Being willing to yeah. stand up and be martyred. Exactly. To stand up for your faith in whatever context you find, and to take the vow that when put to the test that you will stand up for Christ and accept martyrdom.
1: And, and also uh, obedience uh, to to the Pope and to, to doing what is necessary um, and to the bishops um, throughout the world. And so the Pope is urging people to do that. He's certainly not urging them uh, to, to fight back or to, to commit violence.
0: And then there becomes this precipitating event, as right. you said, which is sort of a reminiscent of the Guy Fawkes Gunpowder Powder Plot. Right. That suppose, supposedly, Catholics are going to blow up the not the Houses of Parliament, but in this case, uh, Westminster Abbey or something like
1: yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think it's St. St. Paul's, Paul's yeah, because St. Paul's. That, that's where they're holding the new.
0: Uh, Whether that's true or not, or it's a fabrication or whatever, mm-hmm. that 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 becomes the pretense now for. Felsenburgh to make his move once and for all against the Church and the Pope.
1: Right, and and so um, Father Francis, I'm sorry, Father Franklin, who has been in Rome um, in his new position, um, hurries back to England in order to try to head this off um, and to do what he can. Um, and as he's going from Rome to England, he sees coming from England to rome this huge fleet of airships, warships yeah yeah and so felsenberg seeing this threat and looking to destroy the church um essentially nukes rome it, yeah. it's not it's not nukes but, well, it's, nukes it's yet, it's but weapons basically of mass destruction. yeah basically
0: you know he has yeah. this these these kind of airplanes you know how you mm-hmm. imagine airplanes would be and they like these airships and they kind of right. fly over and they basically drop bombs on rome and reduce it to rubble
1: yeah yeah so uh Benson is a- anticipating the, the ability of, of uh, militaries to, to do this aerial bombing to destroy Rome. And so in, in that aftermath, you now only have three cardinals in the world. The pope died in Rome. You have uh, uh, Father Franklin himself, who is a cardinal. You have the Patriarch of Jerusalem. And then you have a German cardinal mm-hmm. who was with him at the time. Um, and so they're, they're the only ones uh, left who can elect a pope, and they elect um, Father Franklin as Pope Sylvester, the, I believe the third. Yeah.
0: Now, in the meantime, Thelsenberg thinks he's wiped out the church and he, and he as the Antichrist now believes that he has the capacity to take final control of the world religiously. Mm-hmm. And that's when he institutes uh, what he calls the test act, mm-hmm. which is to require that every citizen of the world show up periodically and make an act of worship to essentially Felsenberg and Humanis and, as the Messiah of the world.
1: Right. And at this point, that's
0: punishable by death if you don't If you don't do it, do it, it. you're punished by death. And so massive persecution breaks out all around the world. Mm-hmm. Catholics are slain. They're butchered. Priests are hung you know, by the neck until dead in churches. I mean, every the, the most, it's just egregious persecution that's reminiscent of the worst persecutions or a culmination of all the persecutions that had taken place for 2,000 right. years.
1: And it's very interesting because you have this character of, of Mabel Brand um, who is yeah, a we true- Yeah, we gotta talk about is, her. Yeah, yeah. We, we gotta talk about her because she's a true believer in this new religion and, and, and adores Felsenberg. And a big part of what has been said by Felsenberg is that, humanity has come to a new age violence is no longer um, how we're going to solve problems this is an era of peace and yet she's also seeing these these horrific persecutions um, that are not being stopped by the government and this is a sort of crisis of faith for her in this new religion
0: yeah it's interesting because we talked about 1984 and orwell Mm -hmm. and in his book animal farm uh, there's a similar sort of thing, which is that when the uh, pigs, who are the like the Marxists, take over the farm, uh, they promise peace and freedom from labor, but then the burden becomes even worse mm-hmm. on the other animals, and the pigs begin to point out that not all all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, and in the end, you find that the the promises of peace and equality and harmony, which again, this leftist humanitarian. Um religion, that's their their selling point. It actually turns out to be and material, I mean, historically, Marxist socialist regimes have been among the most brutal, especially mm-hmm. towards Christians um, in history. Uh, it always ends in it always ends in Christians being martyred.
1: right. and And Felsenberg actually rationalizes this or comes out with a with a doctrine to justify it um, by saying that because we worship humanity, in aggregate. Um, and because Christianity is essentially a cancer on the body of humanity, it is, um, opposing everything that we uh, think will build this new era. We, we must get rid of Christians. You have to cut out the right. cancer.
0: You're right. It, it, it's,
1: it's simply healing a disease in order to kill.
0: Which is exactly, uh, what, uh, Lenin and later on Stalin said in Russia it's exactly what Mao said in China it's exactly what you know Fidel said in Cuba it's exactly what the leftist uh, the, the the Marxist government of Mexico said uh, when they started stamping uh, in the Cristora war well it's
1: actually quite similar to what the Roman authorities said yeah. that the Christians are the enemy of mankind right
0: because the Romans in many ways the the Roman imperial cult was a, a precursor to that it mm-hmm. was collectivist it worshipped the state and it worshiped the emperor as the embodiment of the, the state. Mm-hmm. So in any case, now it's really kind of come to this last battle. And Christians, Catholics in particular, are told by the Pope, the new Pope Sylvester, to stand at the time of, of testing. Mm-hmm. And that means that when, just as Jesus says, there will become persecutions. And when it's your time to decide uh, whether to manifest your belief in Christ and accept you know, the good death of martyrdom, mm-hmm. uh, that Christians should stand, but not all do. Now, uh, Pope Sylvester's on the run. Why don't you right.
1: talk about that? Yeah, so he, he's now underground. Um, it's actually not known to Felsenberg and to the government at first that there is a pope. They think that they have right. killed all of the cardinals and there is now no head of the church. And so he ends up taking up his abode in Nazareth.
0: Yeah. The, okay. So this is interesting yeah. because Benson in, in the last part of the novel draws on all of this biblical imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, so Nazareth, if people are unfamiliar with the, the geography of Israel, the, the the place where Jesus grew up. But as the crow flies or whatever, it's not more than, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles from Mount Carmel where Elijah contended with the prophets of Baal. Mm-hmm. It's not more than, you know, same distance to not only the Sea of Galilee, but Mount Tabor where the Transfiguration took place. And mm-hmm. interestingly, it's just adjacent to the plain of Megiddo. Better uh, known as Armageddon. Armageddon, the place where the, the final battle. Between Christ and, and Antichrist will take place. And so now Pope Sylvester is kind of in hiding in the in the town of Nazareth. Right.
1: Um and so you have this Pope who's in hiding who physically looks identical to the Antichrist, the world leader who has has come to power. And so you have this this very blatant sort of juxtaposition of these two opposing forces. And what you end up having is that in the, in the context of the worship being made mandatory and, and punishable by death, if, if you don't comply, that one of the cardinals, because the Pope has made new cardinals at well, this point. Well, interestingly,
0: there are how many? 12. There are 12 yep. cardinals. So
1: to, to mirror the 12 apostles, one of them turns Judas. and and betrays him
0: to felsenberg tells Mm -hmm. him in particular i mean benson makes this explicit in the book he says um he Dobrovsky, i think it was the name of the cardinal Mm -hmm. the cardinal moscow tells them where you can find uh, the pope Mm -hmm. in the same way that judas told the you know the sanhedrin where their the temple guards might find jesus hiding so he betrays that, and then Felsenberg decides to cut out this cancer once and right. for all.
1: Go in for the, the final kill. Um, and, and so he organizes, again, a, a fleet of warships to go and, and bomb out of existence And Pope. it's
0: And it's interesting because, again, tying into those prophecies of Armageddon, Felsenberg requires every nation in the world right. to send a, an airship Representative, so that all the nations and he will uh, lead the, the force. Personally. Yeah, personally, standing on the, the front of the, the, the first airship. And so the Antichrist is coming in the air over mm-hmm. the plain of Armageddon with all of the forces of the world <gasps> arrayed around him. And then.
1: And, and so uh, the Pope receives word of this. He knows that it is coming. And what he decides to do is to stay put, to celebrate Mass. And then to hold a Eucharistic procession as the, as the warships are coming in. Um, and, then, and so they're processing with him holding the Eucharist and the
0: and, monstrance. Oh, and, and this is cool too, right? So as it nears this final day, there's earthquakes all around the world. Sure, yeah, and, and, and
1: unnatural heat.
0: Natural and, weather, and the sky gets dark. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these prophecies about the last day and the coming of Christ and the battle of Armageddon are all coming true. Mm-hmm. and of course, uh, Pope Sylvester, Percy Franklin, the protagonist novel, recognizes at this point that what he's living through now is, is the last battle.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and so you have the warships coming in, uh, this Eucharistic procession happening because the, the Pope realizes what is happening and that this is the end. And then you you end with, with oh, a line. On, on. Do, yeah, we want to,
0: do we want to tell people how it ends?
1: Do we? I don't know.
0: Well, I, you well, said spoilers are okay. Fair game, all but. right. Well, <laughs> so <laughs> we also the,
1: should probably go back at some point and talk about the end of the Mabel brand. Yeah,
0: we'll, we'll I'll go back to that. But but basically, what I think is interesting because as I was getting you know the first time I read this book, as I was getting to the last couple of pages, I was like, wow, you know, because I know what the Bible f- foretells about that battle, mm-hmm. right? which is what scripture foretells about that battle is that the forces of Antichrist are arrayed there. Uh, it's, it's the end of the world. And then Christ returns. Mm. And, uh, and this time he's no longer the meek uh, Jesus. He is the, the rider on a horse that is, you know, a white rider on a horse that is faithful and true who comes in and, and brings this age to an end. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was like, well, what's gonna happen here? And I'll let you I'll, yeah, I'll let you tell it in. You know, put your put your fingers in your ears if you don't wanna or hit mute if you don't <laughs> yeah. want to hear how it ends.
1: Well well in short, he doesn't try to portray Christ's return. Um he he simply uses a line in Latin that essentially um translates to and then past to the world in all its glory.
0: Yeah. And so basically Felsenberg and the the Antichrist comes over and drops you know, basically bombs on the last Pope and the last of the church who are, as you say, are adoring the Eucharist. And as the bombs fell, this is then the world came to an end. Mm
1: -hmm. And and we're not told, you know, exactly what form that takes, but we are to believe that, that Christ does return.
0: So what's interesting about this book, I mean, so many things that are interesting about this book, um... Uh, but one of them is that we started this episode by saying that it was science fiction. Mm-hmm. And it is only in the sense that it's a projection to the future. And he does imagine some things like they'll have airplanes and yeah, telephones. It... But really what it's about is it's a is it's a, a telling of the coming of the Antichrist in the last days. I'm trying to imagine
1: what that could look like. What that
0: would actually look like. And he foretells, you know, reading really in nineteen oh seven that by around oh so now <laughs> the Antichrist is here.
1: Mm-hmm. Which, of course, um, that it hasn't happened that way. I'm sure he didn't expect it to happen exactly that way. But, but the more important thing is to to imagine how it might and how we could respond
0: what would the coming of the antichrist look like what mm-hmm. would it mean for the church what would it mean for ordinary christians ordinary catholics uh, let's go back to that mabel character yeah. so she's the wife of uh, one of the one of the um, uh, central characters in the book is as you say a, uh, an english politician named oliver brand who becomes in a sense co-opted into serving the antichrist mm-hmm. And th- that's willingly, a whole, but, yeah, willingly yeah. but you know, I, I, that's, that's a whole interesting thing there about how one becomes co-opted and there's other characters mm-hmm. that do as well, but he has this wife who kind of goes along to a point and then she becomes, as you said, disgusted. And one of the central plot points in the book earlier on, and I think this shows sort of the antithesis of their humanistic collectivist religion versus Catholicism, mm-hmm. because they're really into abortion, uh, euthanasia, and we assume abortion. Because any human life that's inconvenient should, for the good of every for, for the good of the whole, mm-hmm. be extinguished.
1: Right. You have a scene very early on where there's a, an accident with one of the flying ships. Um, and what you see instead of medics coming out to to care for the injured is you have the the euthanasia practitioners squad. Who, yeah. There's yeah. like
0: this euthanasia squad. And yeah, like you say, when, when there's an accident on the roadside or whatever, mm-hmm. it isn't doctors coming to save people. It's coming basically triage and go, well, just put them down.
1: And, and there's also a law in which anyone who wants, um, after a, a short waiting period of, I, I believe a week, um, can have voluntary euthanasia they actually have for euthanasia any, re- any reason. Cent-
0: they have euthanasia yeah. centers everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you don't have nursing homes where old people go. You just have euthanasia centers, and mm-hmm. when you know your time has come, or you're tired of living, or you know the burdens of life are too much, or whatever, you just go to the euthanasia center, and they they let you put yourself down. Right. And now, see, that's where a lot of this stuff is not as crazy and far fetched. I mean, Benson saw the direction that uh, the and, and you know this is I think really. You know, when we talk about thesis and antithesis, Catholicism versus the, and, and that in some sense, Marxism, socialism becomes an antithesis to it, this sort of humanistic religion. The, the notion that, one of the notions of Catholicism, of course, is the preciousness of human life uh, and the imago Dei mm-hmm. in, in human life. And, of course, that's utterly and completely and un, un, unreconcilably opposed to a collectivist, humanistic definition of life. Right. So so Mabel decides she can't take it anymore and she goes and checks herself into a euthanasia center. Why don't you tell that, that story? Because it's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, it is very interesting because she really is a true believer. Um she's she's very disturbed by the violence um that has has come about against the Christians, but she can't really bring herself to disbelieve in the new religion. She she doesn't convert to become a Catholic. Um, it's, it's just that she can't handle it. Um, and she's disillusioned and and she feels that she is not really an asset to this, this humanity, um, anymore. And, and her emotional pain is such that she wants to, um, to simply end it and, and doesn't see any, any reason any, why
0: not. Well, and sees no moral reason why right. not. When a when a human life is no longer useful to the collective, it's it's just removed like mm-hmm. sloughing off dead skin cells or cutting out a you know your appendix when it's no longer
1: useful. Right, and that it's actually of benefit to the to the rest of the body of humanity. And so she goes to this center, she undergoes her waiting period. Um, she doesn't have any any uh, you know, doubts, she doesn't rethink or get cold feet. And then there's this very interesting scene in which she actually does do it and they, give,
0: they basically give you a gas mask and you put it on and you push push the the button and mm-hmm. and take your own life right
1: and, and you have this very very interesting kind of ambiguous um death scene for her in which she's she's fading out and she sees something and kind of goes oh
0: and yeah as she as she as she slips out of consciousness he describes her inner thoughts or you know experience and it really hints because at the end she goes, wait a minute. Uh, Oh, it's what I never thought. Oh, ah," and it kind of ends like that. And it's ambiguous. What was she seeing? Was she seeing hell or heaven? I mean, she sees the after the beginning of the afterlife. And this was controversial in Benson's book. And Mm. I read that he answered a lot of letters from readers over the years as a Catholic priest about was what it is that Mabel saw and there are people like well, the Catholic Church teaches that suicide is uh, is obviously a mortal sin. But Benson said, well, he left ambiguity in it because she didn't know it was a sin. She had never right. been educated in Catholicism. She'd and never for a sin educa- to
1: be mortal, you do have to do it with awareness, awareness and
0: consciousness of it. Mm-hmm. And that and 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 weirdly, at the very end, she as she's slipping, she's going to take her life, and as she's slipping away, she kind of prays to God. She's God. I don't know if you exist, but if you do. I just hope that it'll all be okay. Mm-hmm. And so Benson, in some letters, said to readers uh, in subsequent years after he wrote the book, again, if she's not conscious of uh, that, it's a mortal sin. Nobody ever catechized her to teach her that, mm-hmm. and she made whatever kind of feeble attempt at prayer that she could from sort of natural religion. And he doesn't say that she's in heaven, but he doesn't say that she's in hell. Right, he leaves he, it up to the judgment. Right,
1: of God. and and it's interesting. It, it's kind of a uh, an instance of what the church calls invincible ignorance perhaps right. is that based on her what she's been taught and and her society and her culture um she she doesn't really have the ability to explicitly
0: convert yeah but. i, I th- yeah absolutely and I, I think another thing about the mabel story arc that's mm-hmm. interesting is on the one hand she is an example of despair mm-hmm. and that Again, I know I'm leaning pretty hard on the Marxism-Socialism and humanitarianism thing, but that, that's what the book is about, <laughs> you know? So I'm, I mean, I'm just basically, I think when the context of book, that's, that's what Benson sees as the threat. It's an antithetical to, to Catholicism. And that, that ideology, that combination of political, religious ideology, that worldview, ultimately leads, ultimately leads to nothing but despair. So I mm-hmm. think that's one thing interesting, you know, about the Mabel character. And the yeah. other one is this notion of natural religion, that you get into this whole thing of, well, what happens when someone has never heard the gospel? What happens when someone has never been uh, taught morality? Or it's been
1: so misrepresented to them. Yeah,
0: and so if they reach out, you know, in some desperate sense to the God that they can vaguely know through, through nature... Um, does God credit any of that to righteousness? And the church is ambiguous about that. The church mm-hmm. makes no sound declaration. Right, us no, no, and sound. And it makes it sound, <laughs> enough, but it makes no definite, definitive right. declaration. Right,
1: yeah, it, it it doesn't rule out the idea that God can can save such people, but we can't really yeah. know, and, and it's dangerous to. Yeah, it's a conversation for another yeah. another
0: kind of episode because yeah, the the doctors of the church over the centuries have, have kind of meandered a little bit up around that point. Mm-hmm. So, so takeaways from this book and rec- why somebody would want to read it and what your major takeaways are.
1: Yeah. So I, I think one is that it, it's really just interesting to, to look at it through the lens of how the church and how individual Christians respond in this persecution. And the fact that the individuals are urged not to, to actively antagonize the, the hostile state, but to stand firm um, and to take the persecution or the martyrdom if, if it is given to them um, because they are standing firm. Uh, and I think that most of us, most listeners will not be uh, living in a, in a place where this is an active question right this minute, but there are places in the world where it is and there always will be until the end does come. And so I think it's worth reflecting on that and, and praying and and using this as an opportunity to, to ask the Lord for the faith and the steadfastness in order to, to stand in, in persecution of, of any level of intensity.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I would absolutely undermine, underline, underline underline that. Um, you know, for me, I I think the takeaways of the book are how biblical it is, Mm. um, in the sense that Benson really does Unpack a lot of scripture without explicitly doing it, sort of portraying how scriptural prophecies and principles might play themselves out in the world, particularly what the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist look like, mm-hmm. what those, those worldviews and ideologies look like. Um, and that the church, that, the, that much of what we see today is the antithesis, in, in a very technical sense of the term, mm-hmm. it's the mere image opposite. Of Catholic ideology and of of Christianity and the gospel. And that at the end we all have to make a choice. Will we stand for Christ or Antichrist? And Mm -hmm. are we willing to pay the price? And if we are we do end up living in the last times, are we willing to stand for Christ if it costs us everything?
1: Yeah. But even if I mean, because obviously most ages in this world are not the the end times, but we're constantly having dress rehearsals even in our own lives or in, in the life of the world for what that will look like, because, um, you know, the spirit of, of antichrist, um, the, the enemy is, is always at work. And so I I think there are some helpful pointers in the book, like, like what we said about, uh, the, the ideology that values the collective at the expense of the individual. And of, and of course, Catholicism has a robust, respect for the common good and and wanting, wanting a a just society. But when it becomes, um, at the expense of the individual and, and the individual is, is devalued and and not, um, respected for the image of God that they bear, that is, is a pretty obvious tell. And I think there's plenty of things in our society that ought to raise red flags for us as Catholics along those lines.
0: I just want to Point out to anyone who's listening um, that there's an important distinction between Marxism, socialism, leftism, humanitarianism, as we're describing it, as R. Benson describes it in the book, mm-hmm. and Catholic social teaching. And I did an entire episode on this. So one of the types of episodes we periodically do are the worldviews. And if you search in the archives, I did an episode on Marxism Mm -hmm. as a worldview that is antithetical to uh, Catholicism. So if you're curious about that, I'd recommend that because... I think for a lot of people today, when you say Marxism, socialism, you sound like some kind of a, you know, American right winger and you're opposed to caring for the poor or whatever, and nothing could be further from the truth of Catholicism. Catholicism invented, in yeah. a sense, the social conscience and, and care of the poor. But there is a worldview and ideology that uh, I think people, they they come for they come for the care of the poor and, and it ends always ends up some, somewhere different. So listen to that episode if you're curious. So as we talk about the takeaways for that, I, I, I frame this for me at the end here, Corey. Just why the last two popes maybe perhaps have so strongly recommended this book? Because Francis has recommended it on multiple occasions, mm. and so did Benedict the Sixteenth.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's because the, the kind of social, political, cultural currents that were at work a hundred years ago have have simply continued um, to be at play in our society. They've, you know, evolved and mutated in, in various ways, but but it hasn't become irrelevant. And I think the popes understand that is that you have certainly uh, different kinds of, of Marxism and socialism or um, other ideologies influenced or, or descended from them that are looking to um, establish a, a kind of, uh, I mean, again, when you say the, the phrase new world order, you sound like a, a tinfoil hat guy, but, but that, that are actually looking to, uh, to establish, uh, some kind of, uh, of state or, or authority. I mean, they want to reorganize the
0: world as globalism. I mean, yeah. frankly, it was, that was pretty explicit, you know, Benedict the 16th, when he recommended this book, saw it as a warning against Globalism, the globalist elite and the formation of global states, mm-hmm. which would which would crush the individual and crush Catholicism. And Francis uh, said m- much of the same sort of thing in, in in different ways on the several occasions that he strongly recommended this book. In fact, I think it was right after his uh, uh, ascension to the papacy that Francis recommended this book very strongly if people wanted to understand what he thought he was going to be all about. Mm-hmm
1: yeah and i mean you there's there's a healthy debate in, in politics about what the role of of things like the united nations or or international bodies are. It's not to say that anything that's international is is by definition bad but that when you have the idea of an, of an authoritarian regime that is is overall that is um, captive to these kinds of secular ideologies that can't but end in something that's bad for for individuals and that is also opposed to the teachings of the church.
0: Yeah. So, uh final thoughts uh as we check out here about this book that you want to say to any of uh, the listeners?
1: Um I I would recommend that you read it. I think it it's helpful um it, it's good context for understanding um both the religious and cultural currents of when he wrote it but also our own day um and and the history in between. I th- I think that um, reading about um, Persecution, even in fictional context, is is helpful because that's always going to be, um, to one degree or another, the reality of the church in different parts of the world. Um, and I I think it is really just a very interesting book. So I would recommend it.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, the last two popes have recommended it. So uh, <laughs> so don't they,
1: take my word for it. Yeah,
0: don't take <laughs> my word for it. I, I would. The only thing I would say to a contemporary reader is. I, I give this book a uh, sort of an A plus on the, con- on the content. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it is a book written in 1907. So if you're used to contemporary novels, just in the kind of pacing and phrasing and, and, and literary style, just, it is a 1907 novel mm-hmm. and it, and it has a lot of the literary conventions of a, of a 120 year old book mm-hmm. uh it's not written like a left behind novel or a page turner but it, it's a it's a fascinating book and you can tear through it and you know in you know a few days or a week if you want to uh couldn't recommend it more strongly so we will the next time we'll come back and i think i think uh we'll be doing some more of this sort of catholic science fiction in some upcoming ones with michael o'brien's voyage to Alpha centauri and uh and uh, Canticle for Lieberwitz by Miller, right? Yes, Walter Miller, Jr. Yeah. And some other things that may be on the horizon as well. So thanks, Corey. Yep, very good. Thank okay. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts, and please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at com.